Well, it's great to see everybody this morning. Those of you joining online, great to be with you this morning. We're in this fifth week of this eight-week series that we've called Starting Point. And the entire premise of this whole series is that faith has a starting point. And I realize that's not very deep because, as you know, everything has a starting point. However, when it comes to faith, something I've observed over and over and over throughout the years that I think few people will ever think about, and is the reason for the season, <laughs> reason for the season, reason for this series, is that the starting point for faith, it, it changes everything. See, the right starting point for, cha- for faith changes everything, but the wrong one does too. And after watching, you know, so many people throughout the years and talking to so many people throughout the years, I've concluded that one of the reasons people are reluctant to start faith or abandon faith or lose faith or become disinterested in faith or question their faith is simply because they didn't have the right starting point for faith. And it breaks my heart to watch. And every time I see it happen, I think, man, it doesn't have to be this way. If, it, if they had the right starting point, it wouldn't be this way. So, We decided to do this series and hit the restart button by asking the question, what would it look like to, you know, just wipe the slate clean and start all over as it relates to faith? What's the starting point for faith, particularly for faith in Jesus? Now, I think if you're considering, you know, either starting or or restarting faith in Jesus, or if you're interested in reigniting or growing your faith in Jesus, that this series is so important for you. Because with the right starting point, you can have a faith that produces a life and joy and peace and purpose and fulfillment in whatever season that you find yourself in. With the right starting point, you can have a faith that grows stronger and stronger and stronger through the questions, through the pressures, through the realities, through the hardships, and through the disappointments of life. And with the right starting point, you can have a faith that God works through to transform you more into everything he's created you to be. Now, we're on an eight-week journey together, and this really is a journey. So if you missed any of the first four weeks, please go back and watch those because it's so important that you have all these pieces and all these pieces fit together as we are on this journey together. Now, when it comes to the starting point for faith, there's, there's, there's another question, a question you've got to ask, a question that, uh, you, you know, everyone has to wrestle with at some point on some level in their lives. And before I tell you what that question is today, we need to go back to something very uncomfortable and very unpopular that we all had an opportunity to acknowledge and confess in, the, in week two of this series, and that is that I am a sinner. Now, I know what we all want to do. We want to go, they're a sinner, they're a sinner. They're, you know, they're, they're really a sinner. No, but that's not what this is about. This is about saying and acknowledging and confessing, I am a sinner. And no one likes the word sin. No one likes actually saying, I'm a sinner, because saying that's like looking in the mirror and going, well, there's the problem. And no one wants to admit that they might be the problem. But we all know that we aren't perfect. So in our efforts to resolve, you know, that tension that to, to describe our less than perfect attitudes and behaviors, we've substituted a different word that's easier for us to bear. And you may have done this. We've replaced the word sin with mistake. But let's be honest, we talked about this, it's much bigger than that. It's much uglier than that. Because you correct a mistake. When you make a mistake, you correct it. You know, you missed your turn, you go back two streets and take a left. Or you say, I'll fix that, or I'll do better next time, I won't make that same mistake again. The problem is, you can't correct you. And come on, you've tried. You've tried to correct you, you've tried to fix you, you've had a really hard time doing it, haven't you? Your spouse has tried to correct you for years. You've paid counselors and psychologists to help correct you with no long-term success. And some of you have blown up friendships, marriages, jobs because you couldn't correct you. I mean, why can't you just stop 
losing your temper? Why can't you resist lying? Why can't you just not eat so much? Why can't you just quit drinking? Why can't you just stop looking at all that stuff on the internet? Why can't you correct you? Why is it, and this is crazy, like why is it that when you try to self-correct and you're doing a really good job, why do you all of a sudden want to uncorrect? I mean, you know, hey, I've been doing a really good job for 13 years, for 13 days. I haven't done that for 13 days. I owe myself one. I mean, what is that? Why do we want to do something that we really say we don't want to do or that we want to stop doing? Why is it that you can't resist thinking about something that doing something that you know hurts you or hurts other people? And we talked about this earlier in the series. It's because you can't correct you, and you're the problem, and I'm the problem. And the starting point for faith requires an honest look in the mirror and coming to terms with the fact that you are perhaps not a mistaker. That perhaps you have a deeper problem than that. Perhaps you are in fact a sinner. And I am a sinner. Now if that's true, that you're a sinner, and I'm a sinner... It unfortunately comes with some negative consequences. On the most practical level, so, you know, some of our past sins have led to feelings of shame and guilt and regret. And isn't it true? Isn't it true that you wish you could go back to some whole seasons of your life and completely erase that or relive that or redo, redo that because it elicits nothing but feelings of shame and guilt and regret. And you're just hoping people don't ask about that first marriage. You're, and when it comes to college, you're like, don't even talk to me about college. Yeah, I was there. That's really all I want to talk about the fact that I was actually at college. And then that thing that happened at work, you're like, you hope no one ever brings up that thing that happened at work that got you fired. You hope no one ever finds out. You hope no one brings it up because you already feel enough shame. And when it happens, when someone brings it up, when they find out all those feelings of shame and guilt and regret that is surface again. I have a really good friend of mine who over 20 years ago had an affair on his wife. And, and you know, they he worked hard. They rebuilt their marriage. They came back together. You know, he's a different person. They have a, a healthy marriage today. But every once in a while, there's something from that, you know, that, that season of their life, you know, some, someone who they knew it get, ends up being brought up to him. And those feelings of guilt and shame will tell you this, that his surfeit again or his wife will bring it up. And even though their marriage is great today, his wife will bring this up. And those feelings of guilt and shame just surface all over again. Now, if that's not bad enough. The consequences of, uh, of, of our sin are worse than that, at least according to Jesus. See, throughout this series, we've discovered that Jesus talked about sin, and when he did so, he talked about it in such a different way. He talked about it in such an interesting way. He talked about it in the context of relationship. And the point Jesus continually made is that sin, it breaks relationship with God. Jesus made it clear that sin is such a violation against God that it breaks relationship with him. Sin is such a violation against holy creator God, his created intent for us, and his created will for us that it breaks our relationship with him. And the writers of scripture tell us the relationship that we broke with God because of our sin comes with a huge penalty, comes with a huge consequence, and that penalty and that consequence is... Death, being separated from God, having a broken relationship with God in this life and in the next. They describe that as death. Which is why I say all the time, sin doesn't make us bad. Sin makes us dead. It makes us stand condemned before holy creator God. And the rise of scripture would say, 
all have a broken relationship with God because all are sinners. All stand condemned before God because all have sinned. And whether we don't want to admit it or not, or whether we've consciously thought about it in these terms or not, we've all felt this. We've all felt there's something broken in a relation between me and if there's a God, who that God is, I maybe, maybe you don't know, but there's, but there's something that seems broken in a relation between me and God or the gods, and something just doesn't seem right, and it's like I'm never, I don't know ever where I stand, and there's just something that seems broken. So the question is, what can wash away my sin? What can wash away your sin? This is, that's a question that everyone wrestles with at some point on some level. And you may have never wrestled with it in these terms, but you have wrestled with it. You may have wrestled with it in this term. What can wash away my shame? What can wash away the guilt of my past sins? In an effort to do so, some of us have tried to dumb down our sins by comparing our sin to other people's sin. Like, okay, I get it. I'm a sinner, but not as bad as them. Like, look at them. Like, you know what they did? And we may feel better for a moment comparing our sin to their sin, but it doesn't wash away your guilt, does it? It doesn't wash away your shame, does it? It just takes someone bring it all back up again, what you did, and all those feelings surface all over again. And then we do this. Then there's the, well, no one's perfect approach. I was young, I was drunk, I was angry, I was lonely, I was broke. And it's true, no one's perfect, but that doesn't wash away your shame, does it? Just saying that. And then some have tried to drink it away, medicate it away, work it away, or more it away, more kids, more money, more stuff. And it may help cope for a moment, but none of it washes away the guilt. So the way wrestlers, wrestle is what can wash away the shame and the guilt of my past sins and... What can wash away the penalty of my sin before God? And many of us have wrestled with this, and we tried to wash it away through, you know, doing good things, serving, coming on Sunday mornings, giving money, getting baptized, taking communion, you know, Catholics going to confession. Or we try to justify what a loving God would or wouldn't do and try as we might, try all those good religious things and try to justify who God is and what God would do and what God wouldn't do. None of it works, does it? We end up never knowing where we truly stand with God and something still seems to be broken and we still feel condemned before him. So what can wash away my sin? What can wash away your sin? And according to the writers of scripture, the answer is nothing we do. Here's how the apostle Paul said it. There is no one righteous. Remember that word we talked about it earlier in this series. There's no one who has a right standing with God. How many people, Paul? No one. There's no one who's righteous. Not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All have turned away from God and have a broken relationship with him because we're all sinners. They together have become worthless, which means dead there is no one who does good, not even one. Hey, what can wash away my sin? What can wash away your sin? Paul would say, nothing you do, nothing I do. We're all helpless. There's nothing we can do. Our violation of sin against God is too big to overcome it by any of our efforts. You and I owe a debt to God that we cannot pay back because you, are, you and I are in fact a sinner. Now, if that's true... If everything I said, if that's true, that makes 
what Jesus had to say about sin so dang amazing. Because when Jesus talked about sin, it wasn't to condemn. When Jesus talked about sin, it wasn't to make us feel guilty. Listen, we already feel enough shame. We already feel enough guilt. We already, already, we already do stand condemned. And we talked about this throughout this series, that Jesus' purpose in talking about sin was not condemnation, but restoration. Jesus unapologetically called us sinners, not for the purpose of condemnation, but for the purpose of restoration, for restoring our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Listen, I get it. None of us want to admit that we are sinners. But recognizing it, is actually a means to an end, an amazing end, a transformational end that we cannot get any other way. Because here's what Jesus knew. Jesus knew until we admit that we're sinners, we'll never seek the thing we need most from God to restore our relationship with God. Until we admit we're sinners, we'll never seek the thing we need most from God to restore our relationship with God, which according to Jesus is forgiveness. So what can wash away your sin? My sin? What can wash away the consequences of your sin? What can wash away the penalty of my sin? What can wash away the debt of our sin? When it comes to starting point for faith, it's, it's, this is so, it's so important to consider this huge, you know, maybe you've never thought of this before thought, this spectacular thought, which is that every faith tradition, every faith system, every religion, every faith book, every spiritual book, every religious book offers some sort of the solution to the dilemma of what can wash away my sin. Now, they don't say it exactly, not every you know, faith tradition, not every religion says it in those terms, but every single one is, is, is offering a solution to this dilemma of here's how you deal with your past failures or your past sins or your past mistakes. Here's what you do to get right with God, to get in with the God, you know, whoever those may be. Here's how you, here's what you, here's how you deal with the consequences of your past, quote-unquote, sin. Every single, every single faith tradition does it. Every single faith system does it. Every single religion does it. But then check this out. There's only one person who has ever offered himself as a solution. In all of history, only Jesus offered himself as the answer to the question of what can wash away my sin. Jesus is the only person who has ever stepped up in history, who ever stepped forward and said, I don't have a solution. I am the solution. Now, whoever would say such a thing is either crazy and insane or they're lying or they're worth paying attention to. Early in the first century, a man named, a man named John, who was referred to as John the Baptist, showed up onto the scene in the region around Jerusalem preaching a crazy message. Preaching the kingdom of God is near. The Messiah, he's talking, you know, preaching to Jews. The Messiah, the Savior, the anointed one, who we've been, all been waiting hundreds and hundreds of years to arrive, has arrived. And so repent to prepare your hearts for the Messiah. And then he started baptizing Jews who wanted to publicly associate with that message. He wanted to publicly declare they were repenting and preparing their hearts for the Messiah you got to know that John the Message Baptist, it was not easy to hear. I mean, it was actually super hard to hear. To, to hear. It was, there was no, like, seeker-sensitive thing in John the 
Baptist message. He just went around and goes, sinner, 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 sinner. Repent, 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 repent. Made everyone feel terrible about themselves. Everyone's feeling guilty. Everyone's like, we're going to burn in hell. Like that's just how everyone felt when they listened to John the Baptist. Yet the writers tell, the writers of scripture tell us that thousands upon thousands of Jews flocked to the Jordan River where John was baptizing people so that they could hear his message. And John's message was so messianic that it, and it was attracting such large crowds of Jewish people that the religious Jewish leaders, they became curious about who the heck is this John guy. So they went down to the Jordan River and they asked him, hey John, who are you? Like, are you the Messiah? Are you the Savior? Are you the anointed one that we've been waiting for? And John goes, oh, no, 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 that's not me. See, I'm here to prepare people for him. I'm kind of the warm-up act for him, so to speak. And then John says this, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. He's like, hey, you think this is a big crowd attracted to me? <laughs> Just wait. Like, hey, you think I'm something? There's someone living among you right now that you don't recognize who is so much greater than I am. And he goes on. He's the one who comes after me, the straps of his sandals. I'm not even worthy to untie. <laughs> you think I'm something? Like, I'm preparing the way for someone. I'm not even worthy to be their servants. And then the next day, John's preaching this message, the kingdom of God is near, you know, repent. And he's baptizing people in the Jordan River. And all of a sudden, he stops and he looks up and he sees someone walking down the bank of the Jordan and he recognizes who it is. And he knows that it's Jesus. And Jesus, no one else knows who Jesus is except John the Baptist at this point in time. And he takes a look at Jesus and he says, hey, look. Look. Hey, everybody, come on, come on, come on. Stop looking at me and look over there. Look. Kids, quit messing around and look over there. And what John the Baptist says next is so staggering. Leveraging 1,500 years of sacred Jewish tradition, John declared, look, the Lamb of God. And everyone's looking around for a sheep. All right, it's a bad joke, but you, you know, you kind of get what I'm saying. You know, John, John the Baptist literally means, look, the lamb sent by God, the lamb provided by God. Now, listen, this to us, it doesn't mean anything. Like, this, this phrase means nothing to us, but to first, in first century Jew, Jewish uh, Judaism, the implications of this were huge. See, last week we talked about how through Moses, God gave the Israelites, who later became known as the Jews, his law which later became known as the Mosaic Law or the Law of Moses. Remember, part of that was the Ten Commandments. Remember, we talked about that last week. Well, part of the Mosaic Law or part of the Jewish Law, or God's Law to the Jewish, the Israelite people, included provision for sin. See, according to the Mosaic Law, the penalty for sin was death. So, when an Israelite sinned, they were required to sacrifice a perfect, unblemished lamb to God. And this lamb's blood covered or atoned for their sin. Now, they knew that the blood of an animal was not equal in value to the blood of a human being, but according to the Mosaic law, that was enough for the time being to cover or to atone for their sin. And so the sacrificing of these lambs, what it was, was a a vivid reminder of the cost of sin, which is death, and their need for forgiveness. See, by sacrificing lambs, essentially they were saying is, we realize that we deserve to die for for sinning against a holy God. And God, we are so grateful that you're allowing this lamb to be sacrificed in our place. For 50. 
1,500 years, Jews, Jews had been sacrificing lambs to atone or to cover their sins. The challenge was the sacrifices had to be done repeatedly because we sin repeatedly. So you're sacrificing a lot of lambs all the time. There was no final sacrifice for sin. Yet, and with that as a backdrop, consider the gravity of what John the Baptist says next. He says, look, the lamb God has provided for us who takes away, literally means who lifts up and carries away. Who lifts up and carries away. Who lifts up and carries away. Let's say that together because I want you to get this. Who and John goes, look, God has sent a lamb and he is going to lift up and carry away the sin of the world. God has sent a lamb, John says. And this lamb, this man is going to lift up and carry away the sin of the world. Jewish sin, Roman sin, American sin, my sin, your sin, once and for all. Now you got to know when John said this, no one had any idea really what he was trying to communicate. No one had any idea the significance of what he was really saying. So nothing really changed with anyone right then. But then after this event, Jesus went on and had his ministry. And numerous times over the next three years, he affirmed what John had declared on that day on, in the Jordan River through what he said and what he did. I mean, over and over and over, Jesus claimed that he was the Messiah, that he was the Savior, that he was the Anointed One. Over and over and over, Jesus claimed that he was the Son of God, sent by God to restore humanity's relationship with God. The relationship our sin broke with God. Over and over and over, Jesus claimed that he alone had the authority to forgive sin. And when they would say, it, like, hey, hey, Jesus only God can forgive sin. He's like, yep, and I have the authority to do that. And then over and over and over, he backed up what he claimed with extraordinary miracles. See, no one understood what John was saying on the banks of the Jordan River that day. But three years later, right at the end of Jesus' ministry, Jesus made it crystal clear. See, the night that Jesus was unjustly arrested by the religious Jewish leaders, right before that, Jesus gathered his 12 disciples, his team, his crew, his closest friends together for their final Passover meal. And the Passover meal was a meal that Jews have been celebrating for 1,500 years to remember the blood of, of uh, to, to remember the blood of lamb, what lambs did in their sacrificial system. And during this meal, what happened during some specified times, you would, you know, break bread and distribute wine to remember what God did for them. The Israelites would the Jews would remember what God did for them through the body and blood of a sacrificed lamb. But this time, as Jesus broke the bread and as Jesus distributed this wine, he said something that was so offensive to Jews that the 12 disciples should have got up and ran out of the room. And here's what Jesus said that on this Passover meal. And he, Jesus, took the bread, giving, gave thanks and broke it and, and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. 
He's saying, hey, for now on, when you celebrate Passover, the one your ancestors have been celebrating, and my ancestors have been celebrating for 1,500 years to remember what the body and blood of lambs did for our sacrifices, we sacrificed them. You are not to do the remembrance of that anymore. You are to do it in remembrance of me. Now, let me tell you how offensive that is. Let me tell you how sacrilegious this would be to first century Jews. This would be like me coming up the Sunday before Christmas and saying, hey, for now on, Christmas, we're going to celebrate it in remembrance of my birthday. No longer are you going to celebrate remembrance of Jesus' birthday. We're going to celebrate remembrance of my birthday. Would you come back? No, you would look at me like Ronnie has lost his mind. He's changed the entire nature of Christmas. And this is exactly what Jesus did that night at that Passover meal. He's saying from this point forward, the Passover bread will represent my body that in a few short hours are going to be broken for you. And this Passover wine is to represent my blood, which will soon be spilled out on your behalf. I mean, Jesus had already made the audacious claims that he had the authority to forgive sins, and now Jesus claimed to be the final sacrifice for sin. He's saying for 1,500 years, you've been sacrificing lambs. For 1,500 years, the lambs were never enough. You need a sinless someone sacrificed in your place to, you know, to, to, to ultimately atone for the death that you deserve because of your violation of sin against God. And I am that sinless someone. I am the perfect. I am the ultimate. I am the sinless. I am the final lamb of God who will literally take the sin of humanity upon myself. And through my voluntary death and through my voluntary sacrifice, I will lift up and carry away the sin of the world once and for all. I am the final lamb. Never look to another. Look to me alone. And as you can imagine, as he's explaining it to them, them that night, they are stunned. And they still did not get it. And we still wouldn't have gotten it. And then the next day, as Jesus predicted and Jesus told him what happened, Jesus voluntarily was beaten. To the point he almost died through the beating. And he was whipped. And a crown of thorns was placed on his head. And his blood spilled out. And then they took his hands, the hands that had healed people. And had risen people from the dead. And they stretched them out. And they nailed nails through them. And nailed them to a Roman cross. And then they tipped that Roman cross up. And he hung there. Bleeding out. And he was crucified. And as he took his last breath, his followers who looked on believed that they were witnessing a tragic and confusing end. But as Jesus had predicted, as Jesus predicted his own death, he also predicted it was necessary for the sacrifice of sin. See, according to the writers of the New Testament, Jesus' death was the final sacrifice of God's final lamb. What can wash away my sin? What can lift up and carry away the consequences and penalty of sin? Well, 20 or so years later, 
after the crucifixion of Jesus on that cross, the Apostle Paul would put the events of that day into terms that we as Gentiles, non-Jews, that's what Gentile means, that we as non-Jews can understand. And he put it in terms in, this, in a letter that he wrote to a young church, to new followers of Christ. And he said this, when you were dead in your sins, once again, sin doesn't make us bad. It makes us dead. When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive in Christ. He's saying the moment you put your faith in Jesus, by asking him to be the forgiver of your sins, the leader of your life, you became alive in Christ. Why? Because here's what happened. That, in that moment, he forgave us all our sins. And don't miss the significance of this. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. Your and my sin created a debt to God that we could not pay back. Which stood against us and condemned us. And check it out. He has taken it away. He has lifted it up and carried it away. He's lifted it up and he's carried it away. He's lifted it up and he's carried it away, nailing it to the cross. Hey, Paul, Paul, what can wash away my sin? And Paul would say, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus is the final lamb, the final solution to your sin problem. See why every other faith system, all other faith systems, all other religions give you something to do in this dilemma of what can wash away my sin? Jesus says it's been done for you. What you could not do for yourself because you were helpless as a sinner against God, God did through Jesus for you and for me. I mean, this is great news. This is great news for you. It's great news for me. It's great news that you've been offered forgiveness by God, a forgiveness you could not do anything to earn, a forgiveness that you cannot get in any other way, a forgiveness that lifts up and carries away the guilt of your shame, that lifts up and carries away the shame of your past sin, that lifts up and carries away the consequences and penalty of your and my sin. You've been offered, I've been offered forgiveness, but God won't force it on you. And he won't force it on me. Forgiveness is a gift that God has made available to everyone. But like any gift, it's got to be received. Just like with any, with any relationship, when you sin against someone else, we receive forgiveness from them by asking them for it. We receive forgiveness from God by saying, Jesus, I, and remember, this is the key word. We've talked about this every week of this series. Jesus, I trust you. I trust you. I trust you. I trust that you alone can wash away my sin. That you alone can lift up and carry away the penalty of my sin. I trust that you alone can be my savior, the forgiver of my sin. See, when we put our faith in Jesus, when we put our trust in Jesus by asking him to be the forgiver of our sins and leader of our life, when you do that, you no longer owe God because your debt has been paid for you. It's been canceled for you. When you put your faith and your trust in Jesus, your past, your present, and your future sins are forgiven. 
When you put your faith in Jesus, you can let go of the shame, you can let go of the guilt, you can let go of the condemnation because it's been lifted up and carried away. When you put your faith and your trust in Jesus, your relationship with your heavenly Father is restored. Every single faith system, every single faith tradition, every single religion offers some sort of solution to the dilemma of what can wash away my sin, even though they don't say in those terms. But the only one who, Jesus is the only one who ever offered himself as the answer. What can wash away my sin? Nothing I ever do. Nothing you'll ever do. Only the blood of Jesus. Now I get it. Some of you are going, Ronnie, everyone dies. Many other people died on a Roman cross. Like, I don't know, Ronnie, if you've ever read the Bible, but I've read it because I'm really smart. And two other people died on a cross that same day next to Jesus. So why should I believe that Jesus can wash away my sin just because he got up on a cross and bled? Like, who does Jesus think he is that he can claim to do such a thing? Once again, that is the starting point question. And there's only one reason to believe any of this. Now, we're going to get to that in the next couple weeks. And until we do, I want you to know I'm not going to invite you to place your faith in Jesus. Until we get there, I'm not going to invite you to place your trust in Jesus. Because I want you to have the right starting point for faith. So that's where I'm going to end it today. Actually, where I'm going to end it is I'm going to end it with a few questions I want to give you to wrestle with again this week. And then this Every one of these sermons in starting po- this part, starting point series this way, I think this journey is so important that wrestling through these questions are going to help you on this journey. So wrestle through these questions this week before you come back next week. Uh, wrestle through them. You know, if you're if you're in a starting point group, you're going you are going to wrestle through them. T life groups wrestle through them this week. Leaders, make sure you do that. Wrestle through them by yourself. You know, take time praying and thinking through these. Wrestle through them on the way home or as you're sitting on your couch when you're done here. So here here's the first question: Do you believe you need forgiveness from God? Why or why not? Do you believe that you are a sinner, that your violation of sin is so big that you need forgiveness from God? Why or why not? Listen, I can't talk you into it. You have to decide this yourself. And it's important, this is an important question to answer because it will determine your view of yourself, it will determine your view of Jesus, and it will determine your view of God from this point forward, and it will determine if you ever need to have a starting point for faith. Here's the second question. Do you believe that you can be forgiven by God? Do you believe you can be forgiven by God? For your violation of sin against God, do you believe that you can be? Why or why not? If so, how? If you believe you can be forgiven, how does that forgiveness come? Now, as we talked about today, the last few weeks, according to Jesus, can you be forgiven by God for your violation of sin? Yes. But it's not by a set of beliefs. It's not by a set of behaviors. It's not because of the family you were born into. It's not because of the church your family's a part of. It's not because your mama baptized you when you were a kid. What can wash away my sin? Nothing we do. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And all we have to do is receive that by putting our faith and trust in Jesus. This next question is for those of you who would say, I've never done it, I haven't started my faith in Jesus. I'm kind of figuring it out where I'm at with that. Man, awesome. Here's my question for you. What is standing in the way of you accepting God's forgiveness through Jesus? 
Like, if you kind of wrestle with this, as we get to the end of this series, and you're like, man, I, yeah, I'm buying it. Like, what's standing in your way of, of starting, you know, of, of accepting God's forgiveness through Jesus? What's keeping you from putting your faith and your trust in Jesus? It's important you identify that, right? That's going to be what helps you either have a starting point for faith or never have a starting point for faith. But you've got to identify that. And this last question is for those of you who would say that you're followers of Christ. For those of you who would say that you've put your faith in Jesus, ask him to be the forgiver of your sins and lead your life. And my question for you is, if you've put your faith in Jesus, what are the implications of that for your past sins, your present sins, and your future sins? And just so you know, as we talked about this, if your answer is anything other than your past the consequences, the eternal consequences of your past and your present and your future sins, if your answer is anything other than they've been lifted up and carried away, then you don't understand the significance of what Jesus went through on the cross for you. The big idea of this sermon actually came from an old hymn called Nothing But the Blood. And what I've asked Justin and Missy to do is, as a closing prayer, to is just sing that over us. And as they sing it over us, I just invite you to think through these questions that I just gave you. To sit there and meditate or pray or think through these. I realize this was a heavy message, but it's a message of extraordinarily great news for you and for me. And right now, as you think over these questions, as you pray over these questions right now, I believe, regardless of who you are, regardless of where you're at in your journey, God wants to meet you in this moment. And more than anything, he just wants you to know the length of what he did for you for one reason. He loves you. Oh, precious is the 
away our sin so we thank you for your blood that because of your blood we can have forgiveness Lord would you help us to grasp the magnitude of what that means for us help us to grasp the magnitude of your love for us we love you Lord it's in Jesus name I pray amen